Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of season four of the Northern Spin podcast. I'm Michael Taylor, and by day, I'm the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest and an occasional lounge host at Blackburn Rovers. That's nothing to do with this, is it? No, nothing at all. I don't even know why I said that. Anyway, here's my happy, clappy crow presenter, Chris McGuire, hot from the studios of Radio 5 Live, where he's been uh, waving the Northern Spin flag. You describe yourself on there, as on here, Chris, as a small C conservative, something I think I'm going to push back on you a bit in the podcast this week, because frankly, you've been coming across as a lowercase L Labour supporter. Yeah. Frankly, I think you're bound to the superiority of my arguments. Well, it's quite interesting, actually, because I was on the Stephen Nolan show and I was talking to the producer beforehand and I said, look, I said, I can't be an out-and-out Tory because I'm not. Look at you now, though, with your blue tie and your... Uh, yeah, I feel more Tory when I'm sitting next to you. Straight, straight from the golf club. But uh, no, actually, um, but I'll be talking about that later, actually. And uh, and I have an apology to make, but I'll talk about that later. Yeah, I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast. I'm fresh, fresh as well as being uh, on Radio 5 Live. I was dragged along to Liverpool's Eurovision Village last Friday by my wife. Did you enjoy that? No, didn't enjoy it at all. Not Is at that all. because you were dressed like that and not in a kind of a... Yeah, in like an Abba type, um, in a sequined outfit. No, no it's no, just... No sparkles and glitter. You know what? I'm glad I went. I'm generally glad I went because it's on our doorstep. I'm not going to get the opportunity to go to many Eurovisions, I don't think, in, a, in our country. But that said, it's just not my bag, really. <laughs> now, um, regular listeners, as uh, as you know, will know that last week, Chris outed me for appearing on a rival podcast, the Manchester Weekly from The Mill which I did two weeks, a couple of weeks ago, um, and said that um, I didn't mention you. Didn't name check me at all, Michael. I listened mm-hmm. to it twice, hoping that I must have missed it. Yeah, well, uh, I'm glad you said that because imagine my surprise when I heard you on the Stephen Nolan show on BBC Radio like, 5 Live talking about the latest rebellion in the Tory party. Brilliant. Yeah, great show. It was a great opportunity to uh, name check Northern Spin Podcast on national radio. What's not to like? Yeah, exactly. But um, I'm willing to forgive you for going on Radio 5 Live. Uh, I think you did a sterling job. I did a sterling job of promoting Labour, I think. My wife said to me, she said, were you supposed to be the Conservative voice or the Labour voice? And I said, I'm the voice of reason, Leah. Ah, always, as ever. Anyway, you described Nadine Dorries as a dinosaur, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Priti Patel as relics on national radio. And um, so I... And I yeah, you did a good job. Anyway, I also apologise. I apologise. Apologize no, I apologise. As well as not name-checking you, I apologise to any dinosaurs that I might offend oh, by yeah. calling Nadine Doris a dinosaur. Anyway, what we're we talking about this week, we've got Transpennine Express lost their contract. Yeah. yeah, we're going to talk about the Tories. We've got another rebellion um, and uh, you're going to talk about the challenges facing Rishi Sunak. Yeah, I also want to talk about an interview that Watergate scoop reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein gave in this country in which they called journalists called out journalists and urged them to um, check themselves in the post-truth era and basically get on the phone a bit more and do some proper reporting. I think a lot of what they said has huge ramifications for journalism. Sounded like a great event, by the way. I also want to speak about a subject very close to your heart, cricket, and its long-term viability in this country. And did you get any um, runs at the weekend? Slightly embarrassed, Michael. I don't like talking about it, but... Oh, uh, yeah. Down for a duck again. No, no. I got 112, but... uh, Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, nice yeah. one. Oh, yeah. really good. Well done. That's okay. really good, Chris. Anyway, very good on, on the cricket. I think it's also my cue to thank our friends at What Media, who expertly produce our podcast every week. The kings of video content creation. They turn our weekly ramblings into the hit weekly podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. And they really make us feel, feel part of the family. Anyway, and on that note, we're going to go to our first break.
got some exciting plans for season four of the Northern Spin podcast. And if you want to sponsor the show and reach a growing audience, then please get in touch. So, Chris, this weekend just gone, the political news beast has been fed by speeches from two events taking place. The Bring Back Blair Affair in London, officially known as the Progressive Britain Conference at the TUC in London, was addressed by Labour leader Sakir Starmer. So, Progress, or Progressive Britain as it's now known, used to be known as Progress. It's a faction or a tradition in the Labour Party that has enjoyed a real flourishing since Keir Starmer retained the leadership for that wing of the party. It's designed to, the conference is designed to fire up the activists to go back to their local parties and hammer the trots, you know, to seize the commanding heights of the party again after some desperately sad days in the doldrums when it was controlled by Jeremy Corbyn. Full disclosure, I am a member of Progressive Britain. I went to the conference last year and saw Peter Mandelson arriving on his Brompton bike. Your mate. Yeah, indeed. Uh, my former colleague, yeah. who I used to work with at Manchester Met University when he was he was Chancellor and I was Head of Regional Affairs. Um, so Progress was started in the 1990s by an old university friend of mine, Derek Draper, who's from Chorley, when he worked for Peter. Uh, Chorley-born Derek, as we now know, is seriously unwell. And his wife, Kate Garraway, has been very brave in highlighting the complications and hardships um, on their family. But anyway, back to the conference. Starmer's speech, as well as talks by Liz Kendall, Alison McGovern and Wes Streeting, really, really hit the mark. Here's the, here's the bit I took from it that I wanted to bounce on to you as well, small C conservative Chris Maguire. Starmer declared the Conservative Party can no longer claim to be conservative, telling attendees it concerns nothing that we value, not our rivers and seas, not our NHS or BBC, not our families, not our nation. And he added, we must understand these are precious things in our way of life, our environment and our communities, and it is responsibility to protect and preserve and to pass on to future generations. And if that sounds conservative, then let me tell you, I don't care. Someone's got to stand up for the things that make this country great, and it isn't going to be the Tories. Now that got all the wrong people, all the right people, should I say, in the Labour Party, absolutely fizzing, saying, no, it's basically out of missing that he's a Tory. And John McTurnan, who is a, a fantastic street fighting Blairite, said it was an important speech, ambitious and reassuring, just like Keir himself. So we've got fanboys on the uh, that wing of the Labour Party as well, Chris. Yeah, it's good but, to know. But here we go. Here's my question to you. What does a small C conservative believe in and where is their natural political home now? Now, I tried to push you by inviting you to critique Matthew Goodwin's intellectual anti-woke conservatism, but you seem very reluctant to oblige. Where are you on all of this, Chris? Just one, one thing I want to mention is I called, um, I called uh, Keir Starmer Cooper, old man, in a recent pod. Yeah, um, I didn't get that. Yeah, because, back to it. because he's, he's quite wooden. Um, you know, and he's, uh, he's just not very real and believable. What I would say is in the last couple of weeks, and we'll talk about PMQs later, I think we're seeing a slightly different Starmer. I think he's trying to go on the front foot. Yeah. He's not afraid of annoying a few people. Yeah, but I pointed that out to you as well. I don't know if you watched the High Performance podcast with Damien Hughes and Jay Humphrey that Starmer was on. And again, I think we, you see a different side of him. And I think as the public are getting to know him, there's all these different dimensions to him. You know, his family, Arsenal. Um, we did an interview with Matt Ford, and he had a real go at um, he had a real go at Boris Johnson. Actually, yeah, that's an um, easy target, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But he basically said he actually hated the guy, which you wouldn't normally get from an opposition leader. But but I think in the last couple of weeks, I think you are seeing a slightly different side to Starmer. Mm. Starmer recognises that he needs to be a bit more on the front foot. I think in terms of 
In terms of what you just said there, in terms of what is a small C conservative, and you mentioned Matthew Goodwin again. Um, he's been all over Twitter once again talking about his books. As I mentioned last week, you know, I'd rather stick toothpicks in my eye and listen to or read Matthew Goodwin. But that said, that said, I did actually listen to him on the Westminster show, the BBC Westminster show coming in this morning, and I thought he came across quite well, actually. But he's still a guy who's trying to make lots of noise about what he's doing. I can't tell you what other small C conservatives believe in, but I'll tell you what I believe in, right? Okay. Um, I'm not a member as a, uh, I'm not a member of the Conservative Party. I don't identify as the Conservative Party, but I do share a lot of conservative values. I believe in wealth creation. I believe in a free market. I believe in low taxes, rewarding work. You know, for a long time, the Conservatives, and you would have to agree with this, for a long time, the Conservatives were seen as being the party that you could trust the economy with and being pro-business. Yeah, that's and their Labour, brand. That is their brand, yeah. yeah and Labour yeah. was seen as being very anti-business. Yeah. What you've seen now is you've seen Labour quite rightly cozying on up to the business community at the last conference in Liverpool, the last party conference, you know, they were packed with businesses who were wanting to, uh, you know, get airtime with Labour. What you've got now is you've got your Liz Trust knackered the economy with Kwasi Kwarteng on their uh, mini budget. We've got the highest tax burden, you know, known to man under the Tories. And the impression I get, it's almost as if, They've transposed, you know, because Labour seems to be the party for business and the Conservatives seem to be the party for high taxes. That's the problem that I've got at the moment, being a small KC Conservative. Yeah, fair enough. I get all of that. I mean, we've talked about the Labour's prawn cocktail offensive, all the smoked salmon offensive, all the breakfast meetings they've been having in the city, all the meetings that Jonathan Reynolds, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer have been having with, with people in the business world. Incidentally, it was Peter Mandelson who was quoted from a meeting that he had with Hewlett-Packard in the 90s where Hewlett-Packard's guy said, why should we uh, support or why should we be comfortable with a Labour socialist government over there, you commies? And Peter replied in his typically dry and, you know, slightly sarcastic response, Lou, because that's the guy's name, we're intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich as long as they pay their fair share of tax. The last bit, obviously, was the bit that The Guardian in particular always used to uh, rub off that quote saying that, oh, you know, there's Mandelson saying that Labour are intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich. You love your impressions, don't you? I do. Yeah. yeah. I'm a, but am I any good at them? Well, that one actually did actually remind me just a little bit of Peter Mandelson. Um, right, so, okay. yeah, for that one, I'll give you a good 7 out of 10. Fantastic. Right, well, let's see how we go with these ones. So let's get back to the Tories. So if Progressive Britain is sometimes unfairly called a Blairite fan club, um, there was the Bring Back Boris conference in Bournemouth, or to give it its full name, the Conservative Democratic Organisation. Now, you treated listeners of BBC Radio 5 to what you thought about it, describing them as dinosaurs. But for me, they're an important part of the Conservative tradition that knows what it's about. You know, you said yourself, it's difficult to pin down what Tories are trying to conserve and where they stand at the moment on the big issues like supporting business but the invitation to the event promised a forum where you'll join like-minded patriots who like you want to save our party and our country yeah we want our country back yeah yeah they talk like that do they yeah yeah well i don't know but anyway just as jeremy corbyn appealed to the much more left-wing activists of labor after um after the defeat of 2015 this lot as we've seen, would re-elect Johnson, Priti Patel or Suella Braverman. And as I've said before, this is yet more example of the worst idea in modern democracies, party democracy, handing over the power to elect leaders and make policy to ordinary self-selecting groups who are party members rather than MPs and other structures within the party and other checks and balances. Overall, though, 
Well, I think what this weekend has demonstrated is that the Tories are in a death cycle. What do you think, Chris? Well, once again, I mean, it's hard to disagree. No, it's hard to disagree because the thing is, is that when I went on BBC Radio 5 Live to talk on the Stephen Nolan show, I said that I can only be honest, and I I am conservative with the lowercase c, but if you look at last week, we spoke about the fallout from the disastrous local elections when the Conservatives said we could lose as many as 1,000 seats and they lost even more. Um, And what you saw this week was the inevitable backlash when people are now looking at the local elections and they're trying to blame somebody. Um, And some people are trying to blame Rishi Sunak the problem is, and this is the problem we've seen over the last, say, five or six years, the Tories are in denial. So when something goes wrong, they blame someone. They don't take ownership of it. And you can look back through the last 10 years and identify examples of that. So on Saturday, former Home Secretary Priti Patel, who, who herself was a pretty disastrous Home Secretary, um, you know, she spoke at this grassroots event. I mean, they are pro-Boris Johnson, the Conservative Democratic Organisation, and she blamed the Conservative Party's leadership for the heavy local election losses. Bracket, I'm basically pinning the blame on Rishi Sunak. I'm not pinning any of the blame on Boris Johnson. Now, this prompted talk in the media uh, of a Tory rebellion. I mean, the word Tory and rebellion, I mean, they, they should be one word because you hear them in, in the same context all the time. I don't think the size or the importance of the Tory rebellion should be overstated. I really don't. And the reason is this, is that would you, and I know you're a Labour supporter, but would you take any group seriously, which is pro-Boris Johnson? I mean, the guy's a serial liar. It's embarrassing. You can't take a party seriously when you've got Boris Johnson at the helm and his cronies basically patting him on the back. I mean, look at the audience that were there at the weekend in Bournemouth. Nadine Doris. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Andrea Jenkins. She sang. Andrea Jenkins. I thought it must be a different Jenkins. She sang at the beginning of this conference. That's why I call them the has-been Tories. Now, what they'd like is they like to hear the sound of their own voices as well. The only way the Tories can win the next election, and it is a big if, a big, big, big if, is if they back Rishi Sunak. I mean, even Rees-Mogg said it would be absolute madness to replace the leader at this stage in the election cycle. They've got to ignore the Boris Johnson sycophants and the cheerleaders, and they've got to hope Keir Starmer makes a mess of it. I can't see it, but that's what they're clinging to. Yeah, I think Boris Johnson was always described as a Heineken politician, that he would reach parts that the rest of the Tory party couldn't. And there was some truth in that. And obviously, as Nadine Doris says, you know, he delivered an 80-seat majority for the Tories. Um you're right in the sense that this is not this, these are not serious people. But Boris Johnson was not was never a serious politician, and yet the Conservative Party achieved what they did, and they achieved Brexit. I do think these are serious times that require serious people, which is why I sort of push back a little bit on your, you know, description that you know Keir Starmer is, maybe lacks the showbiz and charisma that someone like Johnson did. I think Sunak as well is playing the uh, you know the technocratic leader, um, but you know. Trump is making a comeback in America. It, people, there's a body of people that seem to like him, not just despite his failings, but almost because of them. Yeah, but but everyone talks about this 80-seat majority that Boris Johnson won. He went up against Jeremy Corbyn, who was an election liability. So if if, let's say hypothetically, Boris Johnson was still in power and he was going up against uh, Keir Starmer at the next election, would he get a majority? No, I don't think he would. Would he win? I don't think so. Um, it depends what he says, but, 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 what but, he does, but, and what he, how he wriggles out of his little cor- of the corners that he gets put in. But people he always willing- seems to find a way to wriggle out of these things. I mean, he people- hasn't done because he's not no, no. prime minister. But people are willing yeah. to look past their failures because they're so desperate to retain power. Yeah, just quickly, just give us a recap on what's been going on this week with the Tories, and they, you know. But Sunak plays this game, this populist game as well. In his leadership video, he had him shredding and burning 
a load of documents about EU law. And they've had to completely backtrack on it because it's it's the politics of easy answers that the politics of difficult delivery collides with. And yeah, this is what... That's a really good insight. That's a really good summary because basically when he did his um, leadership challenge, he basically said that we're going to shred all these EU laws. I think there was a figure somewhere between four and 6,000 EU laws will be shredded by the end of the year. They spoke about this bonfire, which appeased to, you know, the Bill Cashers of the world and the uh, Brexiteers. The problem is last week, Kemi Badnock, who is the Trade Secretary, whose stock has dropped um, recently, she announced that they'd only be scrapping between 600 to 800 um, statutes and regulations. I noticed at the weekend there was some backtrack of that said it would be more than that um now she was on the uh, she was at the dispatch box and what she said really annoyed the brexiteers what really struck me and i don't know if you saw the video clips but the vehemence of speaker lindsey hoyle is my mp his reaction to badenoch it was incredible yeah it was hoyle criticized badenoch's decision to announce the changes both in an article in the telegraph and um in, in various speeches rather than in person to mps um badenoch then kind of rather huffily said that she was sorry for sequencing the announcement that was not to your satisfaction, like a naughty school child being told off for not delivering the homework, prompting that, as you said, a furious reaction from Hoyle that was totally not acceptable. That's a good one. That's yeah. a good one, yeah. yeah. I'm like, like he's here with me. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, it was brilliant. And, you know, I think I think it did show a lack of maturity on her part and, um, and certainly him asserting his authority about people disrespecting the House of Commons. As he pointed out, it's not me, it's the house. Yeah. It's the house. <laughs> anyway, um, was there anything else to be encouraged for Conservatives like you, lowercase or upper? I think this week has been a bad week for the Conservatives. The thing is, the previous week was a bad week because of the local elections, but this week was inevitable. Um, I thought Keir Starmer gave Sunak a bit of a pacing at PMQs. And this is what I say. It's like he's got his mojo back, Keir Starmer. And um, I listened back to it. And if you listen to what Sunak says, he goes for these like fairly tried and tested responses, but there was very little in the way of vocal backing from his backbenchers. I mean, the silence was deafening. Um, Starmer came on with a few quips, like the prime minister keeps entering a two horse race and somehow finishes third. He keeps using the uh, Liz Trust, you know, lost to a lettuce analogy. I don't think Keir Starmer incidentally should kid himself that he's a comedian because he's not, nor is Sunak as well. And the one thing I do want to get your opinion on is that um, is the Labour coalition. So after the local election, all the projections are that Labour will win the next general election. I don't think that's a big, a big call, but but they'll fall short of an outright majority. I'm not sure actually if there was an election today whether they would fall short of an outright majority. Starmer's refused to rule out a coalition with the Lib Dems. Coalitions don't tend to end well. Just ask the Lib Dems about their 2015 coalition with the Conservatives. What do you think? Well, I think Labour do need to focus on winning an overall majority. And I think the coalition talk has been pushed pretty much by the Tories because it was a line that worked for them in the 2015 general election when they had those images of Alex Salmond with Ed Miliband in his top pocket and said, um, and their slogan at the time was strong and stable with David Cameron or a coalition of chaos under Ed Miliband which I think, frankly, given what's happened since 2015, are words that will come back and haunt the Tory brand. I think Labour will benefit more than people think from their Liberal Democrats doing well because it will be at the expense of the Tories. Which, And I think they are on course to do that, particularly in parts of the south of England. I was amused at the weekend to see Peter Crudus, who was the guy that funded Boris Johnson, from the Conservative Democratic Organisation, talking about the threats that any future Conservative government will be harder to create because of actions that Labour will bring in, such as votes at 16, voter ID, 
yeah, the cat's out of the bag on that one, that it was introduced because of the political advantage that it brings to the Tories and proportional representation. So actually, it's a, it's a massive existential threat to the Tories because of their inability to be able to reach out from their base and form uh, alliances with, with other parties. And I think it's thrown to the fore the fact that Labour does have a policy voted on at its conference for proportional representation. I don't think Starmer's that keen on it, to be honest with you. And you have to fight the next election on the rules that uh, on the rules of the game. You don't, you know, you can't wish different rules this time around. The other thing to mention, Chris, is parties themselves are coalitions. The ERG has acted like a boisterous coalition partner, much more harmful to official policy than the Lib Dems ever were when they had the coalition agreement um, driving David Cameron and Nick Clegg's agenda, and they've extracted a policy that's been entirely against the national interest. Boom. This is the point, actually, that the Conservatives have said, and uh, and I've said, you know, that the Conservatives effectively are made up of 14. They reckon there's 14 different parties within the Conservative Party because it's so fragmented as well. So they don't speak with one voice. Um, one thing I do want to get your uh, opinion on is uh, news last week that the uh, that the Trans-Pennine Express contract, Mark Harper, the Transport Secretary, has announced that it's not going to be renewed at the end of May, meaning it will effectively be nationalised because of a poor service. People talk about what makes a Conservative lowercase c and they're opposed to the nationalization of services i think in this instance i think it's the right decision would you agree yeah i do i think northern's service is much better since it became government run i think the greater northeast service has always been better when it's been state controlled labor's policy by the way is to nationalize the whole network by stealth by just basically not replacing franchises when they run out i don't think there's anything inherently conservative or free market about actually having something that doesn't work that's so reliant on regulation and subsidy to be run by the private sector for their benefit and here's an irony on friday first group shares closed at 116p 30 percent above the 52 week low so actually the shareholders are quite pleased that they've got rid of it and let's not forget of course that first group who ran the transpennine franchise also own 70 percent of avanti west coast so yeah, I I, I I just don't think it would. I don't think rail privatisation has worked at all. I, I'm not um, I'm not sure the passengers of Transpennine Express in Manchester, Liverpool, and Leeds and across the north of England will notice any significant and immediate changes uh, and improvements in their service. Um, just a reminder, of course, at the start of the year, a quarter of their services were cancelled. That's the quarter. It was the highest rate in the UK. Helen Pidd of The Guardian spoke a lot about that as well. I think the decision not to renew Transpennine Express's contract is good news for our mayors, Andy Burnham especially, Steve Rotherham at Liverpool, Tracy Braden in West Yorkshire. But they've been calling for it for a long time. So I think in a sense, you know, you use the phrase throwing red meat to the Tories. I think Mark Harper saying we're going to, not renew Transpennine Express's contract is seen as being good news to Andy Burnham, mm. Steve Rotherham and Tracy Braben because they've been calling for it as well. Let's not forget as well that um, the Avanti West Coast, they only recently had their contract extended by six months and their service is a dog's dinner. So that runs out until October the 15th. Um, they've been criticised because of their reliability and punctuality issues. And also at the weekend, I mean, <laughs> it makes me laugh how many people complain about the train services because they can't get to Eurovision. So these are people from London who are coming up to Liverpool for Eurovision. I mean, a lot of stuff over the weekend about Aslef, um, the latest strike that they've called. And it's just depressing. And I do think, incidentally, I do think the RMT and Aslef, I do think whatever they say, they're losing the public over these constant train strikes. Whatever they say, conservative or not, I think they're losing the public over these train strikes because people are sick of it. I think people are sick of it, but there's two sides to the negotiations that have the ability to resolve it. And on that note, let's go for a quick interval. 
I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community and the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. Episode two of season four of Northern Spin. I just need to give a quick mention as well to uh, our producer, Jamie. It's his last podcast today. And uh, I did say to Jamie, who is 27 and a crowd surfer, I said, Jamie, as in Jamie and the Magic Torch. And he looked at me like there were no batteries in that torch. But you remember Jamie and the Magic Torch, don't you, Michael? I think the expression that Jamie looked back at you was, oh, whatever, boomer. <laughs> now, um, as you know, and as our dear listeners know, you are currently blocked by about 50,000 politicians. No, two. Two, okay. We know one of them is Ben Blockerhouse, and he does get a mention on the show, as always. We did mention last week that Stockport's MP, Nav Mishra, had blocked you. Um, caused a lot of surprise, actually. Um, are you still blocked? Has he seen the error of his ways? Have a look at your mobile phone. Has he seen the error of his ways? And has he opened up those channels of communication and unblocked you? No, still blocked. Still blocked. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we will keep an update on uh, uh, now Blocker Mishra. Um, yep. Something that happened over the weekend as well, uh, Labour announcing plans to extend the UK's vote to uh, include EU nationals and to lower the votes at the voting age to 16 and 17 year olds. Now, some people say it's a sensible move. Other people, like the Daily Mail, have accused Labour of rolling back to Brexit. <laughs> Anything to see in this? Yeah, I do. I think it's interesting. I think it's it's definitely worth a constitutional discussion. I think votes at 16 being back on the agenda is something worth talking about. I was never completely convinced about it, uh, even when my kids were. I think it's at the stage when your kids are kind of 16 and you think, yeah, yeah, they should have the right to the vote. In particular, when one of my sons, Max, was able to put on a uniform and go abroad and pick up a gun in the name of his country, but he wasn't allowed to vote in elections. I thought, yeah, it's a slam dunk really, isn't it? I've got two daughters and I said to the youngest one when she was 16, I said, what would convince you to vote Labour? And she said, no word of a lie, if Jeremy Corbyn gave us all a free chocolate Freddo. Um, <laughs> so I have issues over 16-year-olds voting, but then again, I have issues over lots of people voting. And um, this is the section of the show we call Anything to See Here. So we do a quick roundup of what's been happening in the news. So one thing that caught my eye last week is Lord Jim O'Neill will take over as the new chair of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, the NPP. Now, that's a business-led think tank and uh, advocacy group based in the north of England, based in Leeds, I think. He succeeds former Chancellor George Osborne, who's got about a million other jobs. Anything to see here? Well, it's an interesting piece of positioning. Jim O'Neill is a leading thinker on urban regeneration and sort of policy on these things. He's a crossbench peer now, which means he's independent. He was a Tory peer and took the Tory whip in the House of Lords, and he was a minister in David Cameron and George Osborne's government. But he's more recently done a piece of work for the Labour Party on scale-up businesses, and his influence on regional economic thinking is still massive. But uh, are you excited by his, his appointment? You know, I feel this week I'm taking, I'm assuming your mantle, I feel a bit depressed, really, because oh. no, I'm not I'm not terribly excited about Jim O'Neill. And incidentally, it's nothing to do with Jim O'Neill. I thought he gave quite a good interview to the Yorkshire Post last week. Um, I just don't 
know what power the Northern Powerhouse partnership actually has, what influence it has, and does the Northern Powerhouse still exist? I mean, it's difficult to see the Northern Powerhouse in action. I'm not sure. We talk about levelling <laughs> up. Um, I wish them all the best. I generally do. But also, I mean, you know, I think it needs somebody a bit more contemporary uh, at the helm of the uh, Northern Powerhouse partnership. Something that's going to have them cut through with young voters. But that's just me. Now, yeah, they're not a political party. No, they? no, they're not a political they're, party. They're a lobby group. And most of the heavy lifting is done by their chief exec, Henry Morrison. Yeah. No, but Jim O'Neill is genuinely influential. I mean, him and Howard Bernstein are very close. I know Howard's no longer the chief exec of Manchester, but again, behind the scenes, I think he's a really important fixer. And he's also um, very involved in the Northern Gritstone Fund, which is backing businesses spinning out of universities that have Leeds, Sheffield and Manchester. No, that's so very he's, he's a player and it's good that he's in the game. He's a player. Yeah, yes, I think that's fair enough. We wish him well. We'd like to get him on the podcast one day, I'm sure. Um, I have been doing my homework, actually. I might not have been listening to uh, doing all the homework you've set me, but you mentioned something in last week's pod and I do... I always listen back to the pod to see what we've done well and what we could do better. You mentioned something which I didn't know a great deal about, the Manchester Baccalaureate, so um, which is about Andy Burnham's initiative. Um, this week, he's going to be joined by local businesses, education, political leaders to set out his plans for a Manchester Baccalaureate, which aims to create a clear path from education to good careers for young people pursuing technical education. Now, obviously, um, we talk about devolved powers and education has been a key platform of everything that Andy Burnham has said. This, if it works, could be massive, couldn't it, Michael? Yeah, it could. And the Department for Education is the one central government department alongside the Treasury, which really covets its power very, very closely. And, you know, if, if you don't like something, you call it a postcode lottery in, in devolutionary terms. And if you do, then it's, you know, giving power to people in the areas that they live. I think it's bold. And, but I will say when I went to the first press conference on skills devolution, when it was mooted, I did ask Andy Burnham about the offer to government to create a skill system for all kids. So it's laudable, but where I think it falls down is with T levels. They haven't caught on. They're reliant on employers committing to them and giving young people work experience to combine with their learning. Colleges are reluctant to offer them. Parents and kids aren't clamoring for them. And I think it does need some high profile support to kind of give them a push along the way. And, you know, if, essentially that's, I think what Andy Burnham's offering to do with T-Levels is give the government a bit of a, a leg up. Now I'm the governor of a sixth form college in Stockport called Aquinas. And while we offer A-Levels predominantly, we also offer BTECs in certain subjects, but we're in no hurry whatsoever to offer T-Levels to the curriculum. Um, I also asked whether GM was effectively digging the government out of a hole on T-levels and potentially expending a lot of political capital in doing so. So, But I think it's bold offering a very different sort of curriculum for young people in Manchester that's linked to the economy. I think it's a bold ask. We're, we're business journalists fundamentally. And one of the criticisms you often hear is that um, there's this gap between the classroom and the workplace and it's trying to bridge that gap. And not everybody goes down the academic route as well. Uh, this this new elite that um, that people keep talking about. Um, I used to do a lot of work in Rochdale actually. And they had a really good relationship with their business community. And a lot of those businesses opened their doors up for young kids to do work experience as well. A lot of businesses don't do that. And that is part of the problem. And that was, as you mentioned, where T level probably has fallen slightly short of its uh, of its targets now talking about falling short of its targets 
I, um, I, I would be failing in my duty not to mention Teesside Mayor Ben Blocker Houchin. It's interesting because people have said to me, I didn't know about, uh, you know, uh, Lee Anderson until I listened to the pod. I didn't know about Ben Blocker Houchin until I listened to Northern Spin. Now he's getting some serious heat from Private Eye and Carol Borderman uh, over claims that the uh, 90 acre piece of land for Tees work was sold to developers for less than 100 quid. The reports last week, which I read, to show that it was sold for 15 million quid, which he said was in line with valuations. It doesn't seem to be taking a sting out of this, does it? No, it definitely hasn't. And there's a fantastic piece in the FT today, the Financial Times, by Jennifer Williams, the North of England editor, who's done a brilliant piece, picking up on a lot of the work that she duly credits Private Eye of doing, the heavy lifting on it. She's done freedom of information requests, looking into both the governance and the finance arrangements around the South Tees Development Corporation, the refurbishment of a, of a steelworks that closed down there, the, um, the, the work with both Korean wind farm businesses and Thai banks coming into the area. She really does scrutinise a lot of the claims that uh, Ben Houchin has been making. And I think I would really point listeners towards that article. Really, really good piece of work by Jennifer Williams there. One of the big problems Ben Houchin's got, and we joke about it, we call him Ben Blocker Houchin, is that he doesn't listen to anybody who's got a different view to him. And this is the problem that he's having now. So because he's alienated himself and he's put these barriers up, when the music stops he suddenly finds himself on his own. And this is why the heat's being turned up on Ben Blocker-Houchin. And he's got his usual cronies like, you know, Simon Seven Weeks Clark to stand up on his corner and tweet about it. But but I do sense, and, and Alistair Campbell spoke about it last week in an interview that I heard. Uh, he spoke about his concerns for Ben Blocker-Houchin. Now, he could argue, this is Houchin, of course, Campbell would say that, given his labour history. But um, yeah, I think watch Ben Blocker-Houchin because that story's not going away. Indeed. So um, this is the on manoeuvres section. So the other person I think is on manoeuvres, Chris, is the blonde bombsite himself, Boris Johnson. Yeah. Now, he wasn't in Bournemouth himself in person. Uh, it was obviously, it was his weekend to have some of his kids, but his proxies were making the case to bring him back. So, um, oh dear, the poor deluded fools. But in a week where Donald Trump once again lies with absolute impunity, Johnson is attempting to wriggle out of the consequences of his actions. Anthony Seldon's biography is out, which Johnson's obviously trying to spin against at the moment. It's absolutely devastating. It paints a picture of a man totally unsuited and unsuitable to be prime minister, out of his depth and without vision or principle. Just false promise after false promise. Now, what I think, Chris, is that we are entering a much more serious phase in our politics, which is reflected by a lot of the things that both Starmer and Sunak come out with, which is why I think, incidentally, you mentioned PMQs in the last segment. When, when um, Sunak tries to do that Boris Johnson act at PMQs where he gives Starmer a nickname, it sort of worked for Johnson to call yeah. Starmer during the pandemic, Captain Hindsight. Yeah. And it comes naturally to Johnson because it's that Bullingdon Club, Eton, common room, bullying banter that he loved so much. I don't think it works for Sunak to call him Sir Softy. I think he comes across <laughs> entirely false. Yeah, another accent there if you missed it, dear listeners. That was Rishi Sunak, brought <laughs> to you by Michael Taylor. And available. Sunak, by the way, oh my God, did you see him? He went to a Southampton match in a hoodie yeah. to watch his team get relegated. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's actually ironic that... It's so Sunak, cringe, isn't he? Sunak should watch the match in which his beloved Southampton get relegated. There's almost a, yeah, there's almost a, uh, like that could be a metaphor for the Conservative Party at the moment. Anyway, it's um, another new ground for me to visit next season because I've not been to St Mary's. No, it's a great stadium. It's a great stadium, right. actually. And I've got a really good women's team as well. Um, 
one other person I'd like to throw your way in terms of on manoeuvres is somebody that, I'll be honest with you, I hadn't heard of her before I decided she was on manoeuvres. So my timeline was filled up. It's amazing how the algorithms fill my timeline up with people I've never heard of. So there's a lady called Alex Phillips, right? I've got nothing against her. She's a former Brexit Party MEP. She was a presenter on GB News uh, for a while, I think, until her programme got canned. She appeared on Newsnight with Alistair Campbell, the former um, Labour spin doctor. Now, things got a bit heated, it's fair to say. Campbell, they were talking about Brexit and this fallout we mentioned earlier about Brexit. Campbell called her my dear, which which she accepted subsequently, wasn't the best thing to say. So afterwards, uh, Alex Phillips posted the clip on Twitter claiming she was, I quote, shaking at his rudeness and accused him of bullying and intimidation and thinly veiled misogyny. Now, there's no place in life for misogyny, none whatsoever. I'm not condoning it for one second. But that clip reached an audience of 8.6 million, according to Twitter. Now, Matt Goodwin, your mate, Richard Tice, Nigel Farage, backed Alex Phillips over the weekend, which tells you everything you need to know as far as I'm concerned. Now, I think this is a classic case of someone you've never heard of creating a faux row in order to grab attention. She's now on my radar, but is she on manoeuvres, Michael? Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe, but I don't think it necessarily warrants it. I mean, she, she, you could say she's on manoeuvres from when she worked for Cambridge Analytica and was a, a key part of that kind of cabal of people who delivered Brexit. So she's she's clearly in the mix. Um, not sure she's on manoeuvres. But I, what, I, what I do want to say is I did think Alistair Campbell was intimidating. I mean, he's a presence. He's quite a formidable physical presence and he's quite overbearing in personal situations. And although what she was saying was errant nonsense about Brexit, I think he's got to be more mindful about how that might make people feel in personal close-up situations. I also liked that he called out the BBC, by the way, for being soft on these Brexit types and effectively giving them a platform. I think that's something that's certainly um, caught, had his ire for a long time. But, and, and, and he ripped into Victoria Derbyshire, the presenter of the programme as well. That's what I thought was really telling, actually, because Victoria Derbyshire, she's not a Nick Robinson-type uh, interviewer. So when, when, um, you know, when Alex Phillips... I think she's great, by the way. Yeah, yeah but when Alex Phillips was waxing lyrical about all things Brexit. Victoria Derbyshire didn't question her or didn't challenge her on any of that. Now, Alistair Campbell then said, uh, this is typical of the BBC, not challenging Brexit lies, etc." I'm paraphrasing, you know, and then Victoria Derbyshire said, well, I won't take any lessons on that from you, which was quite a good response. But actually, I did think if it was a boxing match, I thought they both landed a blow on each other. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I've got another one on manoeuvres. Oh, go on. Right, okay. So last week I mentioned... Uh, THG, formerly the Hutt Group's founder, Matt Moulding. Um, as business journalists ourselves, we keep an eye on his LinkedIn blogs, which I think uh, I really like him, actually. And uh, the, the Logan Roy of Northwest Business. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he decided at the age of 51 that he was not going to take all this uh, SHIT, as you know, that like swearing anymore from the media and the investors. And he's just going to respond in his own words on LinkedIn. So on Friday, I was uh, preparing the uh, newsletter for Business Cloud and uh, what should drop in uh, my inbox, but a LinkedIn blog from uh, Matt Moulding, revealing that THG had rejected a bid from US private equity company Apollo Global to buy the company. And he explained the reasons why they turned down this uh, this approach. It's really good, actually. Um, the post was accompanied with a photo of Matt Moulding behind his desk. And I spotted the fact, because I'm like this, I spotted the fact he was wearing a protective sandal on his right foot. And I asked him whether or not he'd injured himself. And Moulding came back and replied, 
And I quote, the foot op was to fix an injury from a charity football match last summer. Only just got round to sorting it. Now the FT, exclusively exclusive, told Maguire. Exclusively <clears throat> told by Chris Maguire. The FT, you mentioned him earlier, ran a story saying that Moulding had, quote, literally shot himself in the foot, making reference to the same foot injury. But we, the readers of Business Cloud, know the truth. Now you're jealous that you missed it. Well, it's hardly Woodward and Bernstein, and we'll speak about them in the next bit. But on that literary bombshell, let's go for another interval. So one of the businesses I'm involved in is Proactive Progress. Proactive Progress is a monthly meeting of ambitious Northwest businesses who grow through collaboration. Every month, I hit my black book. We bring in a big name speaker and share experiences, challenges, and opportunities. If you're interested in joining Proactive Progress, contact me. Lots of methods to do that, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, or my business partner, Paul Woods. If you want to grow your business, do it through Proactive Progress. of the Northern Spin podcast. So we mentioned Woodward and Bernstein. They were the journalists that uh, unraveled the Watergate scandal in the 1970s in Washington. They were in the UK last week at a special investigative journalism conference hosted by Tina Brown, the journalist and wife of the legendary late great Sir Harold Evans from this part of the world, from Manchester. Mm -hmm. And it was supported by the amazing Tortoise Media and Durham University to give it a Northern hue. Uh, they were joined on stage at uh, various times by Barry Diller, ex of Fox and a close personal friend of Rupert Murdoch, Jesse Armstrong, the writer of Succession, and also appearing on the stage, who I thought always does a really good account of her work, is Mariana Spring from the BBC, who talks about doing journalism in the post, post-truth environment. Some of the abuse Mariana Spring has got on social media is absolutely horrific. Yeah. I listened to a podcast that she did and she she's amazing. I've got so much respect for her, but it's disgusting. There was three high profile women working in the media talking about the abuse that they get from trolls and the misogyny that we just mentioned earlier. And it was horrific, but she is fantastic. Yeah. And I, do you know what, Chris? I think we it's really important on us to just Try and understand, as old fellas, yeah. what allyship means, what it means to support women, which is why I'm absolutely prepared to call out things like Alistair Campbell, I think, crossing the line with someone who I fundamentally disagree with almost everything she says, Alex Phillips, the former mm. Brexit Party MEP. But, you know, there is... We have to be able to promote a culture and a discourse that is much more inclusive and... You know, and it's always women, isn't it? Yeah. Which is why I'm always reluctant to criticise someone like Diane Abbott. The abuse she gets. I mean, I, I don't think that is, is in any way acceptable. But can I just make the point as well that I agree with you. I think it's right that we call out what we see as being uh, examples of misogyny. And there's overt and there's much more subtle versions of it as well. I think the problem is now, though, if you just challenge somebody, it doesn't mean to say it's misogyny. You're just challenging somebody yeah, because you disagree with their view. But it's, it's, it's how you do it. But yeah. you're absolutely right to point out the abuse that Mariana gets. Anyway, another podcast recommendation I've got for you is Iran's Hit Squads on Tortoise Media, created and investigated by a fantastic journalist called Paul Karana Galizia, the son of Daphne, a Maltese journalist who was 
murdered in pursuit of corruption stories in her home country of Malta. Anyway, there's loads of clips online from the Sahari Summit as well. And, um, and I definitely recommend that podcast to you. The best bit of advice, though, Chris, that I got from the conference at the weekend from Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward was a quote that I texted you in the week. Stop trolling Google and pick up the phone. Knock on doors. You can never make enough calls. And I think journalists have got out of the habit of doing that. I know I have. And we always say to each other on our morning business desk calls, just make a, make a few calls. I agree with you. I also think, though, there's a recognition that the problem with the media is this. We talk about the thin blue line in police, the thin line in yeah. the media now. There aren't many of them. And we just mentioned there about the uh, Matt Moulding piece. Um, we saw that on LinkedIn. It was all packaged up for us. You copy and paste. You put a top and a tail to it. You put it on your newsletter. It's your top red story of the day. And, and what you've got to do is you've got to kick back and say, okay, if we're going to make sure that... 10% of our stories are going to be self-generated where we speak to people. You know, that still leaves you 90% where you can find those stories that are ready-made press releases. Yeah, ready-made with a ribbon on. Anyway, this is the fun bit. So let's talk about something very close to your heart, cricket. Now, I quite like cricket and I've played it a little bit, but nothing like to the extent that you do. But as one of our national sports, I genuinely worry about how sustainable cricket is. I read a piece over the weekend by the former Wisden editor, Matthew Engel, who's a brilliant writer. I really like whatever he writes about, be it traveling on trains, traveling through Europe, or, or indeed cricket. And he has some profound concerns for sport. Now, incidentally, I did Google Matthew Engel critic, critic T20, and it came up with an article that was written five years ago that was very similar to the one that he, similar sentiment and similar fears for the future of the game. But here we are five years later. You know, he's really skeptical about things like T20, the 100, which I still don't understand, the IPL, the Indian Premier League in cricket, and the decline of the five-day five game which has changed cricket um, beyond all recognition. Now, we'll presumably, Chris, have a, a sellout Ashes tour this summer, but test cricket isn't as popular. And whenever I see pictures from county games, all I can see is empty white seats and a few people with flasks and blankets over their knees. Um, Andrew Freddie Flintoff did that series about getting a club going again in your part of the world, yeah. south of Preston, which highlighted some of the issues. Give us some insight on what's going on in cricket, both at the international big money end and also the fact India and Pakistan haven't played each other for about 10 years, have they? And we've got a World Cup coming up where they're the contenders and yet they don't, they, they can't play each other in each other's countries. They have to go and do it in Dubai or something. Yeah, yeah, it's just because of, it's because of the political tensions that go on between the two countries. A, a couple of things to mention there. And you are right. Cricket is a great love of mine. What Freddie Flintoff did with his, his show was excellent. Obviously, Annam, we've mentioned him before, who incidentally has just been picked for Lancashire, which is great. Um, is he really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that yeah. was a kid who was on Freddie Flintoff's show where he, he went behind the scenes and tried to get a bunch of kids together to show how cricket can you know, improve their lives and their attitudes and all the rest of it. And he did a great job. And one of the kids was a refugee from Afghanistan, wasn't he? Yeah, Annan. Yeah, and he's been picked for Lancashire. Yeah, and oh, he man. was um, he got into the country on the back of a lorry, and uh, he's two amazing carers that are looking after him. He played at White Coppice for one game. I opened the batting with him, um, well, sh showed him the ropes, and yeah. then he went to uh, Exton, and he went to Wigan. Good lad, likable lad as well, and he's just completely transformed his life. Um, in terms of cricket, there's a few things I'd say there. So um, I am a traditionalist. I am. I'm, I'm old. I'm Small old. Small C conservative. Yeah, yeah. I am. I love Test cricket. Uh, I love what England captain Ben Stokes is doing. I love what Brendan McCullum's doing. They call it 
it basball. Let's try and breathe new life into test cricket. It's fantastic. Yesterday, there was a round of first-class games, um, the four-day games, and there was a game up here in Old Trafford uh, between Lancashire and Somerset, and the last day of the game, because the first game, the first day got washed out by the weather, as is often the case, or pretty much washed out. It was badly hit by the weather. Somerset battered out the entire last day for a draw. They were leading by about 350 runs. So what was the point of that? Um, and that's what I don't like about the way people just play and they don't think about the entertainment value. Test cricket in England is flying, but a lot of test cricket around the world is played to empty stadiums, whereas the crash-bang wallop of the 2020 cricket is played to packed stadiums. I find that depressing. Situation in England is different. You know, I've got a ticket for one of the days at the Old Trafford Test Match against Australia, sold out. Um, the four-day game have been shoehorned into the beginning and the end of the season. So in April and September, when the wickets at their greenest and their bowler friendly, the 2020 Vitality Blast starts on Saturday. The idea when that was launched was it would get kids to cricket matches during the summer holidays. The summer holidays haven't even started yet and the Vitality Blast is starting on Saturday. The reason it's starting on Saturday, they've got to get the 100 competition in in August. Remember, they changed the cricket and they changed to the 100 so that you would have 100 balls and suddenly all the razzmatazz and lights and stuff would make that exciting. It doesn't. The 100 is on a slippery slope. The thought process there is that it's going to be canned fairly soon because they can't attract the biggest stars because... There's too much cricket. And here's the thing. Well, I play for White Coppice uh, near Chorley. I reckon the average age of our team is about 35. Me and the other opening bat, Steve Atkinson, our combined age is 111. He's 60. We were founded as a team in 1875. And five years ago, we came within a whisker of folding because we couldn't get the players. And it's the reason old dogs like me are still playing. I worry about the longer format of the game. And I don't think the shorter format of the game is getting enough young kids playing cricket. Just my view. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. That's really good insight into, into the world of cricket. Thank you. Anyway, uh, culture-wise, I want to talk about our high streets and the importance and purpose of councils working with private investors to open up opportunities and take advantage of changing demographics because on Saturday night, I went out for dinner in Sale, just west of Manchester City Centre, just down the road from Altrincham, which has had its own renaissance. And I was really, really surprised and impressed by what's going on there. The pedestrian shopping centre's had its roof taken off. And there's all these different food outlets, ranging from Rudy's Pizza, uh, they're, they're down there. There's a few other ones, a Portuguese tapas place. And we went to Green's, which is Simon Rimmer's excellent outpost from his Didsbury vegetarian restaurant down there. There's also Sud, which is a pasta place, and many, many more. So well done to Trafford Council and well done to the property developer behind that with in sale. They're also doing a few things, bringing in a daytime economy as well as a nighttime economy, something very similar has been going on in Stockport. So yeah, I'm, I'm pleased that people seem to be getting their heads around the purpose of our town centres and our communities once again. It's good. It's good, good to see. I'd recommend it. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, what else have you been up to? Come on. Well, listen to your recommendation. Uh, so I, uh, I decided to download Jamie Bartlett's new podcast on the BBC called Believe in Magic, which is on BBC Sounds. To say it's brilliant would be an understatement. It's as brilliant as it is disturbing. And what it does is it looks at a girl who was seriously ill and she set up a charity to try and grant wishes to kids who were seriously ill. But it raises really thought-provoking questions about the way she's brought up parents, everything else that goes along with it. I don't want to give it away. Um, I mentioned earlier I went to Eurovision 
on Friday, Eurovision Village. Glad that I went. Didn't enjoy it, but I'm glad that I went. Um, I will just mention one thing as well. Congratulations to Liverpool for hosting the event. And there was a real... Because they were hosting it on behalf of Ukraine, who won it last year. And I think Liverpool deserve huge kudos for what they did. What, what I don't want to see, though, is Liverpool navel-gazing for the next six to eight months, talking about the fact how they put on a fantastic um, you know, Eurovision Song Contest. Liverpool has got to get its own house in order in terms of business, in terms of the council and everything else that goes along with it as well. Um, I'd shame the UK's entry did so badly. Can you sing? Because I know you're a big Eurovision fan, aren't you? Can you sing Eurovision? No, do you know what? I, mean, I liked it a couple of years ago. But I've never been a big Eurovision fan, if I'm honest. It's not really my sort of music. Um, and yeah, it is disappointing that Britain never seemed to do very well at this stuff. Mm -hmm. There were high hopes for May Miller this time round, but I, I feel really bad for you. It's almost a career kiss of death, isn't it, doing badly in Eurovision as well? It is. And yet the guy who won it last year, or was second last year, Sam Ryder, it's made him, yeah. it's absolutely yeah. made him as it's well. It's a massive but, risk though, isn't it? But 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 I'm I'm just to show my age, you know, I was telling somebody, telling the kids, uh, telling my girls about Bucks Fizz, you can speed it yeah. up yeah. and you can slow it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, tumbleweed moment. <laughs> but do you know, Sweden won it and next year is the 50th anniversary of ABBA winning it, obviously in, 20, in 1974 with Waterloo. <laughs> Good so. knowledge. Good knowledge. Yeah, so I think that could be a big, big uh, occasion this time next year in Sweden. <laughs> I've, never been, like, I've never been to like, Sweden. Well, they don't talk like that. I've never been to Sweden. Okay. I really want to go. Not for Eurovision, but okay. I really want to go to Sweden. Anyway, thank you, everybody. That's all for episode two of season four of the Northern Spin podcast. If you want to sponsor the podcast, get in touch with either me or Chris. Nine of our most downloaded episodes were from season three. So the momentum, the force is definitely with us. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, all the platforms. And so please review us if you can. Give us a five-star review, if you like us, that is. Um, don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter, at Northern underscore Spin One, or watch us on YouTube. Thank you to What Media, in particular, Jamie from What Media, for doing all such hard work in putting this podcast together. Special mention to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name, as ever... Is Michael Taylor. And I'm not so happy, clappy Chris Maguire. <laughs>